From the New Media Project at the NYU School of Medicine, I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. On today's program, the big bubble technique. People have tried various different techniques of trying and achieving a deeper plane of dissection in the cornea to try and reach the deeper plane where the interface is much more smoother. People have tried injecting air, they have tried injecting saline, they have tried injecting viscoelastics to achieve the same purpose. First this. The Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education requires a financial interest disclosure before any CME activity. Dr. Fogla declares no real or apparent conflicts of interest. Do you enjoy the programs you hear in this podcast? Why not contribute to the conversation by calling our listener response lines? Share your expertise about an issue we've discussed by calling. In the United States, dial area code 646-808-0231. That's a local New York number. In the United Kingdom, dial 020-7558-8275. That's a local London number. You can also ask questions of any guest who has appeared on the podcast. Then your question will be relayed to the guest, and your question and the guest's answer will appear on the following podcast. Go ahead. Try it out. It's cool. It's a shame to perform penetrating keratoplasty on patients with keratoconus. They tend to be young, and aside from a tendency to become ectatic, there really isn't anything wrong with their corneas. When visual acuity is impaired by scarring, the scars tend to be small. And when they're simply contact lens intolerant, and we're grafting them for topographic reasons, well, it's like cutting off your foot because your shoe doesn't fit. Worst of all, we're subjecting these patients to a lifetime's risk of endothelial rejection, when most of these patients probably have better endothelial cell counts than we do. It would be a completely different calculus if we could transplant everything but the endothelium. Such a technique has been devised, and to explain it to us today, I have as my guest Rajesh Fogla. What are the disadvantages of penetrating keratoplasty in patients with keratoconus? Well, keratoconus is a condition characterized by corneal thinning and forward protrusion of the cornea, which results in irregular astigmatism, which finally affects the vision of the patient. And to correct this, most patients require semi-soft contact lenses. Now, in advanced cases, when the corneal curvature becomes very steep, a stable contact lens fit cannot be achieved. In that situation, you have to resort to surgical procedures to try and restore the corneal anatomy. Now, in the conventional full-thickness keratoplasty, you cut out a full-thickness disc of cornea in which the healthy endothelium is also sacrificed in patients with keratoconus. In comparison, if you do a lamellar keratoplasty, you can preserve the healthy endothelial layer of the patient, and this prevents rejection of the cornea later on because the body does not recognize the lamellar tissue that has been uh, transplanted because the inner uh, endothelial layer is still intact. In conventional keratoplasty, you require very good tissue to achieve good results after doing the surgery in keratoconus. 
which means that you require a young donor tissue with cell counts over 2,500 or 3,000 cells per millimeter square. Compared to this, in lamellar keratoplasty, you can use even corneal tissue with poor cell counts because uh, the, the host endothelium is preserved, so you're not dependent on that. So tissue utilization from the eye bank is better. And uh, even when you're doing a full thickness keratoplasty, the amount of the trauma induced by the surgical technique itself reduces the endothelial cell count of the donor tissue. So even if you, let's say, if you have a tissue with 3,000 cells per millimeter square uh, density and you're doing a surgery full thickness, there may be a 15 to 20% endothelial cell loss intraoperatively due to the surgical trauma. This is not there with the lamellar keratoplasty, that the big bubble technique with the deep lamellar keratoplasty. What is the long-term risk of endothelial rejection in patients with full thickness penetrating keratoplasty? Uh, it depends because most of these patients who undergo full thickness keratoplasty require steroids for a longer period of time to prevent the body from rejecting the donor tissue. Now, the risk of rejection in this is totally dependent on how frequently the patient visits the doctor and how rigorously does he continue with the topical medications. In India, most of the patients, they have the full thickness keratoplasty. They go back. They are doing very well. Unfortunately, after a year or so, they start becoming irregular on the topical medication. They sometimes stop the steroids. That is when they suffer episodes of graft rejection. As such, the outcome of full thickness keratoplasty following uh, in, in keratoconus is extremely good, and patients do have good results. But people have to use steroids for a longer duration of time. And sometimes because of this, patients can develop complications related, uh, related to long-term steroid use, namely steroid-induced glaucoma or steroid-induced cataracts. Prior to the advent of air injection for lamellar keratoplasty, there was a technique called mid-lamellar keratoplasty. Can I get you to describe that? Lamellar keratoplasty is not new. It was being practiced back in 1890s and the early 1900s. But during that time, the lamellar keratoplasty was mostly restricted to the anterior one-third or anterior half of the cornea. In, in that technique, the interface used to be a little rough. Uh, uh, there was a significant amount of interface haze and which affected the quality of vision, and the results were not as good as what people used to get with full thickness keratoplasty. That's why it was not being practiced regularly. Now, since 1975 or so, people have tried various different techniques of trying and achieving a deeper plane of dissection in the cornea to try and reach the deeper plane where the interface is much more smoother. People have tried injecting air, they have tried injecting saline, they have tried injecting viscoelastics to achieve the same purpose. And in another interesting technique which was described by Dr. Mellis from Netherlands, he injects an air bubble into the anterior chamber and then he proceeds with the keratome to uh, the, the, uh, the keratome knife to try and achieve a deeper plane of dissection by looking at the reflection of the knife against the air bubble. But again, a lot of these techniques were not reproducible, which means that it would work in one surgeon's hand. But again, when somebody else tries to reproduce it, they are not able to achieve the same. When I came across this technique of air injection, this was way back in 1996. This was with Dr. Chad Rostron, he is in St. George's Hospital in Tooting in London. So he used to have an air injection technique 
But there again, it was not called the big bubble technique, but he used to inject air into the cornea to try and increase the thickness of the cornea, which would help facilitate uh, corneal dissection. And in that, it was a trial and error technique whereby we would try to reach up to the decimals. But initially, I tried with this technique, uh, corneal perforation was quite common, and it, it, it did work in maybe one out of five cases. But in the other five cases, I had to convert to a full thickness keratoplasty. These cases were done with conventional wounds? No, this was uh, done uh, without the prior understanding that you're actually trying to detach the decimates from the cornea, from the corneal stroma. This was just in blind injection of air into the cornea to try and you know, increase the thickness. When, when the other technique, uh, Anwar and Teachman, they described this technique in 2002, where initially a partial thickness trephination is made, so the, the help that you get from the partial thickness corneal trephination is that you can introduce your needle at a much deeper plane. You know where your needle is going into the cornea because if you remain fairly superficial in the cornea when you are injecting the air, the detachment of the decimates is not possible. That means you don't get the bubble. It just uh, You just get distribution of air throughout the cornea. And this also, you know, uh, kind of... Uh, wipes out all the landmarks, so when you're actually doing surgery, sometimes you lose track of what plane you are working in. With the technique described by Anwar, what you do is first you refine partial thickness up to a depth of about 70 to 80 percent, then you use a 27 gauge needle and you go at 80 percent depth into the corneal stroma. And then at that plane, when you inject air forcibly, it causes the decimates membrane to separate from the the residual stroma. So that is the separation of the decimates from the stroma is seen clinically, like when you're operating, you see that as a nice round big bubble. The, this bubble, the edges are frothy white appearance. So that kind of gives you that the decimates has detached. And thereafter you puncture the bubble and do a blunt dissection to remove the anterior stromal tissue. First incise it, then cut it off with a blunt tip scissors. At the end, what you're left behind is with a nice clear decimates, which is very smooth. Now, when you take a donor tissue and punch it from the endothelial side, you can just peel off the decimates membrane from the donor tissue. So again, you have a nice smooth stromal surface. So now when this tissue is opposed to the smooth decimates membrane, the interface is extremely smooth and you don't get any interface-related opacity or any kind of problems. This is one of the reasons why the visual recovery is as good as penetrating keratoplasty following the deep lamellar keratoplasty using the big bubble technique. Can I have you describe the design of this study? This was not a comparison. This was just a prospective interventional case series. What we reported was 13 eyes of 12 patients, but we have been continuing with this study, and right now there are more than about over 65 patients that have undergone the big bubble technique of deep lamellar keratoplasty. So here we basically, uh, the patient is given a choice of whether to undergo a full thickness keratoplasty or to have a deep lamellar keratoplasty. And once the patient understands what the implications are, then they, then they sign an informed consent and then they are enrolled into the study. Can I have you walk me through one of these procedures? Uh, I, I've done uh, plenty of penetrating keratoplasties, uh, but I've never observed this big bubble technique myself. Okay. As someone who has been doing corneal surgeries for the last nine years, even I have been fairly, uh, you know, doing penetrating keratoplasty for, you know, a large number of patients. But I think before somebody embarks onto doing lamellar keratoplasties, what they should do is they should practice lamellar dissection on the regular full thickness keratoplasty because the ultimate aim in that is to you know puncture and penetrate and then cut out the tissue 
But before you make a full thickness entry bone, people can, you know, familiarize themselves by doing some amount of lamellar dissection in these corneas after doing a partial thickness trephination. Now, going on to the deep lamellar keratoplasty using big bubble technique, preoperatively, we would look at the corneal topography, and clinically, you have to identify the fleshers ring so you have a fair idea where exactly the cone is in the cornea because your trephine size should be larger than the size of the fleshers ring because you want to remove all the pathological tissue that is there within the cone. If your if your trephination does not remove the entire cone, then there is a risk of further progressive ectasia in the post-operative period, maybe 6 to 12 months later. Now, once we have decided on the trephine size and we have looked at the pachymetry thickness, we do a regional pachymetry, so that, that gives us some idea as to what corneal thickness we are dealing with. Usually, the trephine size uh, should encompass the area where the corneal thickness is more than 600 microns because you don't want to put a donor tissue in an area where the cornea, the, the residual corneal peripheral cornea is very thin because then there would be edge mismatch. After you have planned out the surgery, the surgery is usually performed under general anesthesia because sometimes the surgery may take a little longer than what you plan. So if, if it is under general anesthesia, it's relatively simpler, both for the surgeon because there is not much of pressure on the surgeon to perform the procedure much more rapidly. It helps the surgeon to relax and go over with the procedure taking his own time. So that's the reason why I prefer general anesthesia for these cases. Okay, now coming to the surgical technique, we have already talked about the trephine size and where exactly the cone is, so we know where to perform the partial thickness trephination. So a partial thickness trephination can be performed using a hesburgh baron vacuum trephine. Uh, I uh, usually sometimes use a manual trephine from stores. Usual trephine size is about 8 to 8.2 to 8.5 millimeter diameter. Uh, after making a partial thickness trephination for about 50 to 60 percent of the stromal thickness, uh, we reassess how deep we have actually cut with the trephine. Now, the area where we are going, where uh, the air injection needs to be performed, where the needle entry is, one can take a sharp 15 degree knife and cut a few stromal fibers so that the corneal uh, thickness, uh, the depth is uh, achieved. That means you hold the central corneal button with a pair of fine tip scissors and using a 15 degree knife, you can just slice us, uh, some of the stromal fibers so that you attain about a cut of about 80% depth. Now you take a 27 gauge needle, attach it to a 5cc syringe. This needle tip with the bevel facing down is bent at about six to seven millimeters from the tip. And this bend is about 70 to 80 degrees bend. Now you go, you hold the corneal stroma with a fine tip to forceps, and then the needle is gradually introduced into the corneal stroma at about 80% depth, and the direction is kept paracentrally, avoiding the apex because that is the thinnest part of the cornea. You go into the cornea for about four to five millimeters, and if you're at the right depth, sometimes under higher magnification when you see uh, with your microscope, you can see actually wrinkling of the decimus membrane as as a needle is being uh, pushed forward. Then air is injected forcibly. There is an initial resistance uh, to the air injection, and as the whitish uh, as the air enters the stromal lamella, you will see a whitish appearance of the corneal stroma. The initial resistance is suddenly followed by a sudden giveaway sensation, which indicates the 
creation of the space, that means the bubble is formed, the decimates has detached from the stroma. Once you see this, the pressure on the plunger can be reduced, but you can still continue to inject air because the bubble will initially be small. It will not be occupying the entire cornea, but you want to inflate the bubble so that the edge of the bubble reaches the edge of the trephination mark. Now, at the first instance, some, even in my hands, I get the bubble only in about 60% of the cases. Otherwise, you just get uh, diffuse whitening of the stroma with a lot of the air being in the corneal stroma. In this situation, when you're not sure whether you have achieved the bubble or not, what we do is we withdraw the needle, come back, then use a too fine tooth forceps to hold the central corneal button, and using a crusan knife, we do a lamellar dissection and remove about 40% of the superficial corneal stroma. This gives us a better view of the underlying stroma and we can see whether we have achieved the bubble or not. In case if we do not see any bubble and we are not sure that we have achieved what, what we wanted, we can now further inject air into the stroma, but we have removed already 40% of the superficial corneal tissue, making the cornea thinner. So sometimes going again with the needle into the residual stroma can sometimes be a little risky. So what we do is, first we create a small pocket in the corneal stroma using a, a little bit of fine dissection, and then use a 27-gauge cannula attached to a saline-filled syringe, and we inject some saline into the corneal stroma, which helps build up the stromal thickness. The stroma kind of expands with, with, the, air, uh, with the fluid being injected. Now, once you have kind of thickened the corneal stroma uh, in a local area, you can again go with your air-filled syringe with the needle attached into this fluid-filled stromal space. And then once you introduce your needle, you can inject further air. And this helps achieve the bubble in about the remaining 40-45% of cases. So when I started with this technique, I would get the bubble in only about 70% of the cases. But now after having performed more than 60 cases, now it's uh, it's a technique that you learn as you do more and more. Now the chance of getting a bubble with the injection technique is almost close to 95%. Now, why does the air move from the deep stroma to the space between stroma and decimase membrane? Because there is a potential space between the decimates and the stroma, which has weaker adhesion. So as you inject air into the corneal stroma, this air has to go somewhere. So it goes across the corneal lamellae. If you are a superficial plane, you will, you will even see the air coming out of the trabecular meshwork into the subconjunctival space. Sometimes through the trabecular meshwork, it tries to get into the, even into the anterior chamber. But if you are at a deeper plane, the corneal lamellae at a deeper plane are much more loosely adherent than the anterior cornea. So what happens once the air is pressurized into the posterior stromal tissue, uh, it kind of pushes the decimates away from the corneal stroma. Please go on. Uh, you, you have your big bubble now. Where do you go from here? Yeah, once you have achieved the bubble, then what I do is before I proceed any further, we make a peripheral paracentesis to kind of release the aqueous and make the globe a little soft. Once you have done that, then we mark on the cornea with a marking pen to identify the site where you're going to puncture the stroma to enter the bubble. Now, the trick here is when you're going to puncture this bubble by making an incision in the stroma, you need to go in with a sharp 15-degree knife. As you are entering the bubble, the bubble does not collapse. So you can very confidently go with your knife into the bubble. But once you have entered, you have to withdraw the knife very quickly because it is during the time when you are withdrawing that the bubble collapses. So if you are slow during that time, your tip can touch the decimus membrane and you can rupture that.
A lot of people, instead of doing this, prefer just to scratch the cornea to try and enter the space, and then they fill the space with viscoelastic to kind of separate the decimates uh, or, or, or protect the decimates. But I don't recommend that because once you fill that space with viscoelastic, the decimates can get coated with a layer of viscoelastic, which can remain later on in the interface once you have put the donor tissue. Now, once I have punctured that and I have collapsed the bubble and I have gained access to the bubble by making an incision in the stroma, I take a blunt spatula, a blunt iris spatula, and gradually introduce into the space through the opening. This goes all the way up to the edge of the trephination mark from the center, from the point where I have punctured. Now, this is something that acts like a guard, and over this blunt spatula, I use a sharp knife to cut off the stromal fibers. So this kind of splits the stroma from the center to the periphery. So I do it from the center to about 5 o'clock inferiorly first, and then I reverse the spatula, come to about 11 o'clock, and then split the spatula, uh, split the anterior stroma. So once you have done that, you have bisected the anterior stroma above the decimates. After this, you can further split this, what you have bisected into two halves, can be further split into another two segments. This uh, helps uh, cut out the anterior stroma at the peripheral edge, because if you have smaller segments, you can actually lift them up much more to uh, cut out at the edge of the trephination mark because you have to be very careful when you're doing this step towards the periphery where the kind of DM is still attached to the corneal stroma. If you're not very careful, your the tip of the scissors, whenever it comes with the decimates, can accidentally cause a puncture there. So for that, I have designed a special curved Warner scissors, which where the tip is rounded, it's not pointed. So that if, with this rounded tip, even if I'm, you know, uh, while I'm cutting out the stromal tissue, even if it touches the decimates, it does not cause any kind of damage. But one has to be very careful while doing this uh, step because this is the step wherein most of the time you end up creating microperforations in the decimates. Sometimes there are a few fibers that are still adherent in the peripheral part of the you know, uh, attachment between the decimates and the stroma. So you can actually take your iris spatula and you can go there and actually first separate the stromal fibers before you use your scissors to cut out the stroma at the edge of the trephination mark. So once you have achieved this, once you have cut out the stroma all 360 degree, you have a nice exposed decimates membrane. Then you can, you know, punch out a donor tissue, which is, if you're doing it for advanced keratoconus, it can be ideally the same size as the trephine what you have used on the host tissue. Supposing I have used 8.2, so I use a 8.2 trephine to kind of punch out a donor disc from the endothelial side. Once you have done that, you can take a pair of fine forceps and you can use actually a fine tooth forceps to hold the stroma and with the fine tipped fine forceps you can actually hold the decimates and peel it off the donor tissue. Sometimes if you're not able to identify the decimates membrane properly in the donor tissue you can stain it with indocyanin green or with trypan blue. You can just put one rub of the dye and it stains the decimates and then you can use a dry merosyl sponge to kind of rub the edge and that kind of identifies the edge of the decimates which gets folded and this can be held with a fine tip forceps and just peeled off. So once you have achieved that, now you have your donor tissue ready with a smooth stromal surface and you have already created the uh, host bed. So the donor tissue is placed and then sutured using 10 on nylon or 11 on nylon. I prefer 10 on nylon because it gives better grip and you can achieve the kind of tension that you want. I usually use 8 interrupted, which is followed by a 16 by continuous suture. And then using Melone's intraoperative keratometer, you can kind of adjust your sutures to achieve good results. You might sometimes see some folds in the decimates membrane, 
especially if you're dealing with very advanced keratoconus. That's because the surface area of the cornea is more, so this, the decimage is kind of more stretched and it has a more surface area. And we are trying, when you're trying to flatten it by putting a donor tissue and reducing that surface area, sometimes you, occasionally you may get few folds in the decimage. Uh, what you can do is once you have sutured your donor button into place, and if you still see some folds on the decimates, you can actually stroke the surface with a you know, blunt spatula and kind of iron out so that the, the folds will still be there, but the idea is to kind of move them away from the visual axis as possible. You're not saying that you stroke the surface of the endothelium? Yeah. No, not the endothelium of the cornea. You can you can you can you can put a little bit of viscoelastic on the surface of the donor tissue, and then gently stroke it with you know a blunt iris spatula, so that you know you're not hurting the epithelium, and at the same time you're trying to kind of you know uh, iron out the folds that you see in the decimate. Yeah. So this is after you've finished suturing your corneal button into place, because the flattening achieved. Sometimes you may see these folds in the decimates which are there. Do you ever put air in the anterior chamber? Yes, I do sometimes. Yes, sometimes I do. But again, uh, I don't want to put too much of air because in few cases, because here you are flattening the cornea, so your anterior chamber actually shallows at the end of surgery. And if you put in an air bubble and if you're not very careful, sometimes you can end up with a pupillary block. So even if you put up air, put just put a mid-size air. Don't attempt to put a very large bubble into the anterior chamber. And you can ask the patient to stay supine for the first uh, 24 hours, 12 to 24 hours, if you have put an air bubble into the anterior chamber. And you also use dilating drops to kind of keep the pupil dilated, which also prevents a pupillary block from developing. I presume that the reason that the endothelium sticks is because of swelling pressure, uh, similar to the way that a, a LASIK flap sticks down without it's sutures. Fu- yeah, it's a functional endothelium. So the moment the endothelium stays in contact with the donor tissue, it's a functional endothelium, so there's a kind of vacuum that's created in the interface, and the decimus kind of sticks very well to the stroma. Next day, you will be amazed to see that the cornea is absolutely clear. When you do get microperforations, how do you handle them? Well, like I said, that before you actually embark on you know, de-inflating the bubble by making that incision or making an entry into the bubble, you make a peripheral paracentesis. This is very important. Because if you don't do this and you end up with a perforation later on and the globe is kind of hypotonous, making a paracentesis can be very difficult. So since you have already have a paracentesis earlier, so if you do encounter a microperforation, you can put in an air bubble into the anterior chamber, which kind of you know seals the perforation, and you can still continue with the stromal dissection, but you start from an area away from the perforation that you had and try and gently complete the dissection. In most cases, you can actually comfortably go ahead, complete the dissection, and finish with the surgery. If the, if the perforation is in the periphery towards the uh, you know, trephination edge, then usually nothing happens in the post-operative period. But if the perforation is in the mid-periphery somewhere, then yes, post-operatively, you can sometimes develop double anterior chamber when the decimates is kind of detached. So in those cases, at the end of surgery, it's extremely vital to put in an air bubble, so which tamponades the microperforation. And uh, sometimes in such cases, even let's say day one, it is perfectly fine, but day two, you see a small kind of double anterior chamber. You can just observe them, and over a period of few weeks, they kind of go away. You don't need to aggressively go and put in non-expansile mixture of C3F8 or SF6 of that sort. But in my initial cases, when we I used to have this kind of double anterior chamber, I used to get very worried, and I used to try to manage them immediately by putting in air or you know non-expansile mixture of 
SC3 or 8 or SF6. But off late, uh, I have started to just observe my patient, and I find that in just about two to three weeks, uh, the dismiss kind of settles down very well. I would be very uh, careful in patients who have had inferior perforations because that is the one, those are the ones where you know tamponading is very difficult because of the inferior location. Uh, because if it is superior, then the air bubble kind of tamponates it very well. But if it uh, if it is inferior, then you can, it's very difficult to perforation. But at the same time, when you're doing this surgery, you, I usually use non-optical quality of donor tissue, but I always keep optical-grade corneal tissue standby because in case if I have perforation that cannot be managed and I need to convert to a full thickness, uh, I need to have a good quality tissue for converting it to a full thickness keratoplasty. What is your standard post-operative medication regimen? Post-op medications would be basically uh, we can use topical steroids like uh, prednisolone just about three times daily for about a week, reducing it to two times daily for the second week and then once daily for the third week. After that, if patient is still a little symptomatic or if I feel that there is a need for steroids, I usually resort to using fluoromethylone maybe about two times daily for about a month. Along with that, I give uh, topical antibiotics, usually ciprofloxacin, four times daily for about a week. And along with this, I supplement it with artificial tears, which can go on for about three to four months. This can be either carboxymethylcellulose or HPMC. What were your findings from the study? How did the patients do postoperatively? Uh, most of these patients were very happy with the unaided vision that they had. This usually ranged from 624, that's about 2000 to 20 unaided, so which uh, even with that, they were quite comfortable doing their data. Yeah. And uh, most of them were very happy that they did not need to use uh, drops for a very long period of time. And for me, it was very happy because in India, you get patients coming from all different parts of the country, and some of them stay very far away, so it's not possible for them to visit me very regularly. So even if they miss out on the steroids, sometimes I'm not worried because it's a lamellar graft, but if it was a full thickness keratoplasty, yeah, sometimes you do a good surgery, get very good results, but they miss out on the steroids and sometimes, you know, they end up with a bad rejection and that makes you feel sometimes very bad. So that way, I think uh, lamellar keratoplasty is very gratifying. And the best part is even like one of my patients recently had a lamellar keratoplasty done, but for some reason he had an injury on the corneal surface which left a scar. So I could just go back, peel off this lamellar graft, just like you relift the elastic flap, these kind of tissues can just be peeled off. You prepare a new button and you put it and it was back to normal. So that's, that, that's very encouraging. And in fact, we did publish a paper last year in Cornea in May issue where we looked at the results of deep lamellar keratoplasty combined with tending tower limbal autograph in severe grade 4 chemical injury unilateral. And these were all children with line burns, and all of them did extremely well. So I would rather say that lamellar keratoplasty now forms about 80 to 85% of my corneal surgeries. Full thickness keratoplasties, I would perform only about 10 to 15% of my patients right now. How well is the endothelium preserved in these cases? Very, very good. Most of these patients have endothelial cell counts because because of the advanced keratoconus, sometimes preoperatively when you try to put them on the clinical specular microscope, you're not able to get a good image because of the kind of very irregular corneal surface or very steep surface. But postoperatively, when we have done the specular microscopy, the cell counts have been, you know, always about 2,800 or more, and very, very good cell counts. So that that is so reassuring. 
except the cases where you have microperforations sometimes you know there was a patient where i had micro three microperforations and by the time i finished surgery so i was wondering what but even this patient when we saw post operatively he had a cell count of 2400 cells per millimeter square which i don't think i would have you know even if i had done a full thickness keratoplasty um, I, i'm not very really sure that even if he had 2400 cells from a full thickness keratoplasty i would prefer a lamellar graft with the 2400 because i know that the risk of rejection is zero and these cells are going to re- remain there for a much longer period of time rajesh fogla Thank you so much. Okay, bye-bye. Dr. Rajesh Fogla is senior consultant, eye surgeon, and cornea and laser refractive surgeon at Apollo Hospitals in Hyderabad, India. His paper, Results of Deep Lamellar Keratoplasty Using the Big Bubble Technique in Patients with Keratoconus, appears in the February 2006 issue of the American Journal of Ophthalmology. Ask questions of Dr. Fogla or any of our previous guests or make a comment about any of the topics we've discussed. These interviews are meant to be the start of a conversation in which you participate. Call our listener response lines in the United States dial area code 646-808-0231. In the United Kingdom dial 020-7558-8275. or Skype jyoungmd those numbers can be found on our website as seenfromhere.com be a part of the next podcast i'm josh young